0: And when you bring in the A players, the A players wanna step up. You know, they want the challenge and they're gonna help their colleagues out. And if you get a team of A players together, man, you can, you can do anything.
1: The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew. And there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit? yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to The Dirt. Our guest today has truly walked the entrepreneur's journey from zero business experience and starting up during awful economic conditions in the dot-com crash, to building a best place to work and a fastest-growing company. He now gives back to other founders on their journey, hence why he's joining us today. You've heard me talk about technical debt on the dirt before, but today he and I are really going to dive deep into how to shed organizational debt by focusing on team dynamics and business fundamentals. Lifelong entrepreneur, George Morris, welcome to the dirt. Hey, Jim, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You bet, man. Let's start with some of the basics. Tell the audience who you are and, and how you got here. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to give the elevator pitch short version. Yep. So I graduated college in 99, I think it was. Damn, that sounds long ago. My background was environmental science, but I got really into prior to that, the five years prior, I got really into the internet. And I remember at the time trying to explain to people what the hell the web was. Like They didn't even understand what it was. And we had bulletin board systems and things like that. And uh, I, I went to start a company up in the nineties to build websites. It was like 95 prodigy AOL time. And, you know, I had no business experience. I remember my first year in business, I made $640. (laughs) That was was the best. And so I, after a year of doing that, I decided I'm going to go work for someone. So I, I go work for this company in Philadelphia called Refinery was there for three months. And then Suddenly found myself in Colorado, opening a new office, wearing multiple hats, trying to get the office up and running right at the dot-com bust. <laughs> like you couldn't have pictured worse timing and everything was handshake contracts. Nothing was written down. Nothing was nothing was signed. And when the dot-com bust hit, they had to shut down a bunch of, uh, they had to close down a lot of projects, lay off a bunch of people. And I had to decide with the office that we had, what we're going to do. And my boss at the time said to me, he's like, well, why don't you go start your own business? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll I'll give that a go. And I'll try this again. Maybe I'll make more than $600. (laughs) And myself and two other coworkers started my agency up. We ran that successfully up until around 2013, 14. And I made some critical mistakes that I'm more than happy to talk about at that time. Did some consulting for a while. Uh, Helped a colleague grow his company for acquisition, had a successful exit. And then after that exit, decided to go full bore into coaching and teaching people what what not to do and what to do based on experience and best practices. So I'm now a certified scaling up coach. It's a system. It's a way of thinking that's used by over 80,000 different businesses globally.
1: Yeah, it's a great system. Before we dive into that, you... Uh, you asked for it. So, what were some of those? <laughs> <others>, uh, <laughs> take us take us deeper on some of those mistakes that you made as an entrepreneur.
0: Oh, man. Okay, so the I would say in the around 2009 2010, things were going really well for the business. We were uh, like a local Colorado fast-grown company. It just seemed like it seemed like it was too easy. Honestly, like things were just clicking. And I decided at the time, I really want to grow. I I really want to scale the company. I want to grow the company. I don't know jack squat about that. I don't have an MBA. So I realized I got to go find colleagues that know what they're doing. So I joined the entrepreneur organization, EO, which I absolutely love EO, even to this day. And as I got in there, I realized this wasn't really all about business. This was around more personal stuff. We, We start on the surface that... Hey, you know, I want to grow the business. I got employee issues, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that's that's great. But when you dive deeper, you realize it's about you. It's about where you're not showing up. It's about where you're doing something wrong. It's about where you have shortcomings. And all of a sudden, I, I realized I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my biggest mistake that I realized at that time is that I started getting to a place where I was abjugating my role, not delegating. Right. If you're delegating, we're clearly defining. You know, Jim, this is what I expect you to do. These are the outcomes. These are the standards that I hold that I expect you to hold. And let's check in with each other once in a while and say oh, you're progressing. That's how you delegate. And in my case, I didn't. I said, Jim, go do sales. Jim, go run the clients. I'll talk to you later. And I didn't. I didn't delegate. So I just kind of just threw my authority, my leadership, all of that out there. And then when I came back to like kind of check on things when I could, when I could put my head on right again, because at the time I was going through a separation or a divorce. And when I came back and looked at the company, I was scratching my head. I'm like, why, why the hell are you guys doing this? It, 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 it makes no sense. We were just getting ready at one point to do a, a we we're doing a layoff and I laid off a good 40% of the team because of another mistake i made. And, uh, my one, my right-hand man decided he wanted to buy all new desks and all new computers for everybody. I'm like, I'm like, why the fuck are you doing this? This makes no sense. You just dropped 30 or 40 grand on office equipment that was totally fine when I just had to lay off a good chunk of my team. And I realized I didn't clarify things. I didn't set expectations. Anyway, that was one mistake. Yeah.
1: That's, that's a big one that that everyone makes, <laughs> right? It's like, right. it's, you know, you, you don't want to micromanage, but you want to, and you want to build people, but throwing the role at them is not the definition of autonomy, right? Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> it, it,
1: It's It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So tell me more about that. Like, what, what do you now do in those types of situations when you're presented with something similar, maybe not exactly a separation, but something in your life that's going on that can leave you from putting everything you have into the business.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. For me, I've learned to compartmentalize a lot more. I'll tell you that, and I've also learned that there really, there really is no life work balance. I think it's a, a fallacy. There's just life, right? There's just the life you lead, and part of your life is the work that you do, and it's how those things integrate together. So they do affect each other. And I think it's clutch to actually be able to compartmentalize. And there's some things that are within your control. And you can look at it and say, okay, well, I can take this thing and I can push it aside for a little while. But then there are things that hit you out of, out of left field that you're not expecting, you know, emergencies or things like that. And and they're a little harder to, they're a little harder to address. Now in terms of the team around me and actually doing the work with them, it's to set really clear expectations with them. For me, the easiest thing to do is if I'm delegating something to someone to go do, I'm a, I'm, I'm a checklist person, right? I'll write down all the bullets of the first things that come to mind and I'm passing this off to somebody. Like, make sure you check this. I guess the analogy I would give is notes for the babysitter. Really, right? Yeah. Like, if I'm going to go out for a night and I'm going to have a really good night out, my kids are older now, but when they were young, I would sit down and make a list up. Make sure you take the dog out. Make sure you make the dog's fed two cups of food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that make when I leave, alive
1: when I get back,
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> but like that's a night out for dinner with the kids. That's not handing over a project, right? That is infinitely more complex. So mm-hmm. coming up with that checklist, I mean Checklist Manifesto, great book, right? I mean, there's a reason why when that book came out, medical errors in the hospital decreased precipitously because people started using checklists. Same with pilots. Pilots use checklists all the time. So why don't we use checklists in our businesses? It's really a simple thing is to, at a minimum, create a damn checklist.
1: Yeah. Everyone always talks about SOWs or, or uh, sorry, SOPs, you know, standard operating procedures. And, and they they think of it as either having nothing or this 50-page document that tells you how to detail how to do something, right? At the end of the day, all it needs to be is a pretty simple checklist, as you're stating, around how to do the job and let someone own it, right? Some things are more difficult than others, obviously, right? Putting a a list of requirements together, if you will, can be a little bit more detailed than just five high-level bullets. But ultimately, it's figure out what the role is, figure out what somebody needs in order to own it, and put it together. I love that. That's a great book, that checklist manifesto.
0: Oh, I love it. Great book. And you know, when you were saying that, what occurred to me is when you have people running a company, you have drama. When you have systems that people run in a company, you get results. Mm. Right. And there was a quote I heard last week that I really love from one of my colleagues, and he said, operators get tired, business owners get rich. Right. Mm. And when you think of a team and how a team functions, the operator at the middle. Which I think a lot of growth companies get to, the operator at the middle is the hub. Everything points to them. They're managing human beings. And they then step back and say, damn it, I'm tired. I can't do this anymore. Well, yeah, because you're the one that put yourself at the center of this. Right. And it's it's really kind of simple. When you lay it all out, the harder part is the execution. And if you can if you can take a step back to, to your point, you know, these SOPs that people write. Honestly, they're a bunch of bullshit because they it's an exercise that they do that makes them feel good, but no one reads it, no one updates it, so it's useless, mm. right? Just like you said, one page, one freaking simple page. Just give me a really quick visio or graphical visual of how the process works at a few key steps and share it with everybody so that everybody can see how the process works. And, yeah. I can go down deeper on that if you like. I don't want to monopolize no, that go, topic.
1: No, keep keep going, man. This is an area that we haven't spent enough time on the dirt. So go for it.
0: Oh, uh, okay. You give me permission, Jim. So <laughs> in, in scaling up, we have this thing called the face and the pace, right? So the face is the functional accountability chart. The pace is the process accountability chart. So I want you to picture columns and rows. Down the columns is your are your functions, right? So sales, marketing, operations, you know, all those and within all those functions are your responsibilities, your accountabilities, everything that you need to do. Now cutting across those things are the pace, process and accountability. So you create your processes, they cut across all of the functions. The problem that most people th- that most people fail to see is they don't assign an owner to the processes, right? Instead They know there's a process here that cuts across multiple functions, but what they end up doing is they take the functional owners and they make all the functional owners, owners of the process. The process then, because there's multiple owners, doesn't get fixed, doesn't get cleaned up, doesn't get optimized. And so what we need to do is we need to identify four to nine core processes in a business. No more than four or nine. That's it. If we got less than four, we don't have enough. We have more than nine. We have too many. And I'll come back to that. But these key processes, you give them an owner. So I have, my, I have my customer onboarding or my customer success process. I give it to you, Jim. You're running that process. It's going to cut across multiple functionalities. Now, in those functions that it cuts across, you're going to run across Jill. You're going to run across Matt that have their own functional ownership. And you're going to have tension, Right. When you have tension, I, as CEO, am the tiebreaker. I come in and I'm like, okay, I hear what Jim's saying, Jill and Matt. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to decide on what Jim is doing because I, as the CEO, am the tiebreaker. But I'm going to let my team to tell me how to best run this process. Does that make sense? Yep, yeah, absolutely. And and I'll go back to I'll go back to the number four or nine. It seems kind of arbitrary, but we're looking for the core processes. And I give the analogy of like my SUV. It has some core functionality. I need to be able to brake. I need to be able to steer. I need to be able to accelerate. That's pretty much it. It needs to be able to carry me, right? Those are the core processes of my SUV and getting to where I need to go. The headlights, the trim, the stereo system, the AC, all of that is auxiliary. It's not something that needs to be at an executive level, core focus of the company. It's not a core core competency or core driver.
1: So, when you think about how entrepreneurs are treating that process today, how does that differ? How does that differ? And what's the biggest mistake that you see people making?
0: I don't think they properly identify it. I mean, I, I have clients that are doing north of $100 million that are just starting to understand their processes in terms of. What are core processes? And you know they, they, they may have talked about it, but if you can name the process and you can give it one owner, that's clutch. And I will say that in nearly every single company I come into to coach, there are multiple people that own something. And when you have multiple owners, you have no owners. There's mm-hmm. no ownership because everyone points fingers. You drop the ball on the ground and they all stare at each other. Or you get one person that always is picking the ball up and they're overloaded and overwhelmed because the rest of the team isn't doing their job. But when you give singular ownership, you now have the power as the owner and the authority to make changes.
1: Yeah, well said. What what else do you constantly see people making mistakes on or, or have you made in your past around team dynamics and the way that they're organizing teams?
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, let me think about that one because there's mistakes I've made, right? Like that's pretty clear. i I would see maybe if I could rephrase it if i if I could see one thing that comes up with teams that I think is in at this time in particular, a tricky one is holding people accountable to what they what they have to do because everyone's afraid of losing people, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a tough it's a tough hiring economy out there. And so there's a fear that if I hold you accountable and you're a talented individual on the team, that you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get up and leave. And and that causes a discrepancy in how I treat everyone or how we treat everyone across the team. Now, I did this. You know, I had my team. I had a few star players on my team that one or two of them were definitely high maintenance right like they required white gloves and special treatment although they were great but i didn't treat them the same that i treated other employees and the other employees could see that mm-hmm. and that creates that creates a weird a weird situation you think of a football team right like if there's one or two players on the football team that are constantly not able to are not having to go to practice not held to the same standard as the rest of the team it builds resentment and distrust amongst the team and that's a killer.
1: Yeah, and and so in that case, how do you how do you treat the A players, if you will, or you know, make sure that the A players stay? Because I've I've heard people say the opposite and, and seen it myself, where the expectations of the of the B players aren't quite at the same level, then everyone starts to become a B player, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just mm-hmm. using B and A loosely, right? But but you get the point. How do you make sure that? your A players stay if you're not treating them differently?
0: I think it's the opposite. I think it's your A players stay and then the others are the ones that leave. The Bs and the Cs are the ones that leave, right? Like the Pause tendency is to-
1: Pause for one second, because that is huge. Say that one more time. <laughs>
0: so I think it's the opposite. You work with the A players and the Bs and the Cs leave. And that that's the big that's the big difference. What we have a tendency to do is in group dynamics, we try to pull down the people that we see at the top. It's a weird, it's a weird, unhealthy pattern of a team that is not a healthy team. And so you see someone excelling and people tend to like undercut them, right? They, they want to bring themselves up. So to bring themselves up, if they're not an A player, they're going to try to undercut the A player because they're going to try to make themselves feel better. That's a great way to highlight who are the B players, An A player doesn't do that. They don't undercut their colleagues. And it's it's really clear. So you work with the A players. You build from the A players. And you open the door to the B and C players to say, if you don't like it, that's the door. Don't let it hit you in the ass on the way out. And you know what? It's going to hurt. It is going to hurt because you're going to lose people that were there with you in the beginning of the company that are good people that you like to have a beer with that you like to talk to you like to hang out and you might know their families. But guess what? They're not probably going to be the same people that you're going to scale with and grow. Hmm. And when you bring in the A players, the A players want to step up. You know, they want the challenge and they're going to help their colleagues out. So if we're on an executive team together, And Jim, you're like, you know, guys, I'm struggling on this particular process or this project and and, uh, I need a little help. That vulnerability that says, hey, I don't always have all the answers and I need a little bit of help, that gives me permission to help you and say, hey, Jim, what do you need? How can I support you? You're Mm -hmm. like, hey, George, that's great. Could you get together next week and work on this? Yeah, Jim, I got your back. Now I'm gonna do the same in the meeting and that shows A player dynamics. But a B or C player is gonna come back and be like, I I can't I you know maybe when the deadline comes I didn't get it done Mm. why didn't you get it done well because you know John didn't get me his thing and then you know I I asked I asked Steve for this thing and, and he didn't get it done so I couldn't get my thing done it's like no you fucking own it you get it done you have the authority and responsibility to get it done get it done find a way ask for help sorry God that is so up for that one.
1: No. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, I hope everyone leaned into that message cuz mm. I see that all the time. And it is astounding when people's brains click into that A player mode and realize exactly what you're stating, how much yeah. time they've lost by not being that A player, right? And yep. so I hope there's a lot of folks out there listening and saying, "Maybe this is me. Maybe like maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe I'm the one." That's pushing this blame off on other folks and maybe I can step up and, and be that a player that I know that my manager or my leader or my founder had the confidence in me to hire me in the first place to be because I, every founder has a person like that on their team. It just, it just happens. So
0: and if you get a team of A players together, man, you can you can do anything. It's anything. You can go to any industry, you can go. If you got a team of A players, and I I would say two great books on the subject is Top Grading by Brad Smart. Fantastic book when it relates to bringing in A players, and Patrick Lattioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team mm-hmm. or The The Advantage. Those three books, I think will give you such a great perspective
1: on the quality of the team. Absolutely. Absolutely, those are all great books. Man, you are the you're the book master today, George. dude. I love books. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So so let's say you've got all these a players, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're doing a lot of things right, but um, maybe there's shifting in priorities or even shifting in macro times or economic times, like we've got going on in today's environment. Why do companies not always find a way to? Keep that 18 together? Like, why do they sometimes fail during uncertain times? Why do they, you know, why do things shift during these times of uncertainty? That's
0: a great question, Jim. I'd say it's a really great question. In my experience, I think the team will start to ask the wrong questions. Maybe they get too caught up in groupthink, maybe they're not taking a step back and they're working too tightly in the company. And they're Mm. not taking a step back to gain a a wider perspective. I think that's where working with a coach helps. Mm. You know, I say to my clients all the time is, I can read the label on the jar. You can't. You're inside the jar. The label doesn't make any sense to you. But from my outside perspective, I can tell you what's going on and I can see what's in there. My job is to come into the team and pull them back and, and get them out of the weeds to see the bigger picture. And I think that helps a lot, especially in a time of crisis. The tendency is to focus harder, more intensely on what it is that you're doing, you know, kind of the Jim Collins hedgehog concept, right? Like, focus in, dial into what you're doing and make that better. And sometimes maybe what you're doing with that hedgehog and trying to focus, you're focusing way too much. And you're not looking at some other macro conditions that might have a bigger shift. So, the discussion topics um the ideation all of that is too narrow and maybe mm-hmm. we need to go broad so simply just taking a step back with the team and saying hey let's look at the bigger dynamics you know one of the one of the tools i like in scaling up and again it's it's so simple that i i sometimes i sometimes like i'll do a face palm a little bit you know there's the swat right strengths weaknesses opportunities threats in scaling up they have what they call the sweat right so strengths weaknesses And trends, right? So it's a subtle shift. But when I say to you opportunities, and I say to you threats, you have a certain type of focus or lens that gets on put on when I say threats, threats. When I say opportunities, opportunities. When I say to you trends, you're you're having a broader perspective. What are the trends? What are the macro trends that we can take advantage of or that we see impacting our business? So to me, a lot of times it's the nature of the question that will change that dynamic. And we get too caught up in our groupthink and we're too narrow. And that's why that happens.
1: Yeah, which is why when you do that more traditional SWAT, oftentimes the teams will have the opportunity section simply be a... Reass- reassessment of what they've already listed as their strengths or, or as their right, reasons, sorry. And it's, right, right. It's the opposite. Right, right. Yeah. And some of these new philosophies, while simple and while philosophical to a degree, the implementation of them is absolutely a clear line towards what tool you're using to get there. Right. Absolutely. Um, so that's that that's awesome. You know what? What else have you found really surprising about the way that people act or teams interact in times of uncertainty.
0: Yeah, mm. <laughs> that's all over the board. I've seen it it depends on the personalities. And uh one of the tests that I use, my colleague Chris Young, he's a he's a fellow scaling up coach. He is 20 years of experience with what they call Trimetrics HD testing which looks at your disk profile and three other different tests, all very scientifically based. And what I can do with that is I can take a look at how you think, how each member of the team thinks. And it doesn't tell me who they are, right? Like when I sit down with them and talk to them, I'm going to get a different impression, but it tells me how they think. It also gives me some indicators of how they're going to respond in stress. And every team is different every team has different chemistry there and sure there's probably if I'm off the top of my head if I'm right 12 to 16 different probably more like 16 uh, disc profiles I tend to be the persuader is that that's my uh, profile and when you're in a team dynamic you see when stress is applied how the different personalities respond and they're somewhat predictable based on the profile hmm. right so when you know that, and you can be aware of that you can try to counter that but that's a lot of work that's a really well trained team to know that for my case as a persuader if if i feel stressed i'm going to withdraw if i feel too much stress around systems and processes that you're trying to put too many constraints on me and you're checking on me all the time i'm going to start to withdraw right so the team needs to have awareness that hey we're putting a little too many constraints on him he's starting to stress we need to work with him to de-stress him so that he can come back and operate at a higher performing level right so i think the personality assessments again on a on a team of a players is amazing because you start to build each other up you work with each other
1: yeah yeah some of those assessments they seem so silly to some people because they're they're not used correctly or they're not used Mm -hmm. at all. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. which is also incorrectly. (laughs) Um, but at the end of the day, like it's, it's those little things that can make such a difference in the way that you're understanding of somebody. And, and you know, that, that leads me to something that I haven't really felt comfortable asking that many people on this show, but something that I, I, I just get this feeling that you're going to have a great answer to this question (laughs) Um, ah, the buildup hit me, <laughs> which, which, which connects to this whole thing of empathy, right? And, and mm-hmm. vulnerability and, and love, right? Which mm-hmm. like we're humans, we want to be loved. Right? We, we want to be understood. But what role do you see that these things, these feelings play in growing a company?
0: Uh, if you have an empathetic leader, uh, you end up you end up with a leader that can take the team and grow the team if they can use empathy to understand the full person. We're as much as I sit here and I talk about face and pace, right? This very systematic thinking. and that's one dimension of a company. and it's, to me, it's a dimension that's overlooked a lot of the times. A lot of the times what we're doing is we're managing the personalities. We're managing the emotions of the team not the systems and processes. So Mm. let's start with the systems and processes. Let's get them down. Then when we bring in the right people to run those systems and processes and they understand it, now we can build another level of empathy with those people so that in times where they need a little help or they need a little guidance, we have a way of communicating because we have a deep level of trust and we know that the systems and processes are there And we're going to be all right, because that person can take some time. One of my team members on one of my client's teams, especially right now, he's having a really tough time. You know, he's gone through some, uh, leave his personal life out of it in terms of details, but some really stressful things in his personal life. And when he was coming into the office, you could see that. You could see him bringing that stuff into the office. And what we decided to do is come back to him and say, hey, Do you want to take some two weeks off? We're going to give you two weeks off. Just go get your life back together. We got this, right? The rest of the team's going to pick it up. Come on back in two weeks and let us know how you're doing. And guess what? He was so appreciative and so thankful for that because that's what he needed. But he was only given two weeks vacation out of the year. So he didn't think he had the ability to take any time off. Mm -hmm. And when the CEO came back and said, hey, man, I can see you're struggling. Go take time off. What does that do to him when he comes back? What do you think that's going to do to him and how he views the company? Yeah. He's going to stick around. He's going to feel like he's appreciated. He's going to feel like he's loved, to your point. You know, I I like what Simon Sinek says. There's a couple of videos I can't like just reference a video online, but it's a talk he was giving in London. And he was saying, he's like, if you talk about how the US military talks about their colleagues versus, companies, right? We talk about our employees, you know, we talk about our co workers. If you look at the military, they talk about their peers that they work with as their brothers and their sisters, right? Like, you hit my brother, you undermine my brother, you're going to deal with me and the other 16 of us, right? Like, they got each other's back. And and it's partly a nature of the work that they do, they need to get each other's back. Yeah. But like, that's what you want to cultivate on a leadership team, that level of if if my buddy is struggling, I'm gonna do whatever I can do to help them out because I give a shit about them. And if you work for a company like that or you can develop a company like that, hell, you got gold, gold,
1: yeah, I've had that same that same conversation, both with myself at times when I didn't fully understand the nature of it, but also with others, right? And yeah. Oftentimes, when people aren't ready for that hard that hard lesson, uh, including myself at that time, it was, you know, well, you just don't understand. That's you just you don't understand. Yes, that's great in an ideal situation, but you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like I got this team, right. and they've got all these different personalities, and you know, they're never going to get along in that way because they've got they're so different. Like some are creative, mm-hmm. right? Some are process. Right? They're they're all different, but. Mm-hmm. It's a hard lesson in understanding when you finally do take the time to look at it and step back to what you're saying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is that is the way the military runs that is the way that the best champion sports teams run right and right right hard up teams are kind of like that if they're run right they are they are training hard and they are driving hard and so why shouldn't they be able to rest hard when it comes time to rest a little bit? <laughs> yeah and and support each other and and be there for each other right yeah it's really a simple lesson in humanism at the end of the day that we forget all too often
0: right and and it's it's also keeping your eye on a prize right and when you give people a prize you give them an objective Mm. they know what they're rallying for and often often people will put money out there like a, a financial goal that we need to hit and at least for me like hey i I I like money just as much as anybody else, but that's not the sole driver as to why I wake up in the morning and put my shoes on, right? To me, it's it's got money is a byproduct of if you're doing something that you care about, that you love, that you see an opportunity about around, and you're interested in, the money will come, like it it will come because you're going to do a great job at it. To me, I I always love with with scaling up and some of the other tools out there, the focus on the BHAG, right? The Jim Collins, big, hairy, audacious goal. And in short, for those that don't know what that is, it's a moonshot, right? It's John Kennedy saying to everybody, we're going to put a man on the moon and safely return him back to the earth by the end of this decade. And to contextualize that, right? Like what, 40 years earlier, we just learned how to fly a damn plane. We just learned how to get off the damn ground. And he's like, in the next decade, we're going to bring a man to the moon and back. And a lot of people came back and said, no way. There's no way we're going to do that. And Kenny's like, figure it out. I can't think of something more inspirational to be part of a team that was working on that objective to get somebody to the moon and back safely Think about how many byproducts came from that, how many things that we have in our society because of the effort that they were shooting for to get a man in the moon and back. And when our companies take a similar approach in terms of what they're going to accomplish, the byproduct is a highly functioning team and company that's worth a shit ton because they're operating towards a bigger purpose.
1: Well said. So this episode is, is I'm sure everyone's loving it right now. <laughs> I know I am. <laughs> And I I don't want it to end. And so before it does, I want to go through our founder five, which is the same five quick kick questions that we ask at the end of every episode. So let me know when you're ready. Hit me. All right, cool. So first off, what is the top KPI or measure that you are relentlessly focused on?
0: Profit per X, Mm. right? So profit per whatever I want to give it that I think is the most important metric. So I'll I'll give you an example. So you have Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walgreens, right? What they focus on is profit per customer visit, right? Their competitors like CVS would focus on profit per store. And it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's a meaningful difference. If I'm looking at profit per customer visit, that helps me understand the quality of the customer that I'm bringing in and how I'm selling them up. If I'm looking at profit per store, I'm not getting to that granularity. I'm just looking like, how much money are we making in the store? So that profit per X is highly valuable. Mm-hmm. Apple has moved it. You know, Apple's current profit per X is profit per subscription. It used to be profit per item, then it migrated to profit per customer, and now it's profit per subscription. So, you know, Southwest is another good one. Instead of profit per plane, they look at profit per plane in the air. A plane on the ground doesn't help Southwest Airlines, but a plane in the air does. And that ties back to their one-word strategy, which is wheels up. So they're looking at their team and saying, we need to find a way to get the plane over to the terminal, get it loaded as quick as possible, and get it in the air. That also means our maintenance team has to be doing their job because we can't fuddle around with maintenance problems. So to me, profit per X is is the holy grail. It's that number one number that you need to focus on.
1: Love it. All right. Top tip for founders in their growth stage.
0: Face and pace, baby. That's what I say. Just like I was talking about earlier, define those functions, get really clear with those functions, and then identify the, the processes that come across them. If I can spend a little bit more time on this one, when uh, the company I was working with to, to get acquired, got acquired, I was working with a, the acquiring company for six months. And they're a 500-person company out of out of Europe, and for one, I was frustrated by all hell as, as slow things moved. Right, like it took right. a lot longer. But they were they were a matrix organization. I've never come across the term a matrix organization until this point. So it was founded by Digital Corporation back in the 70s, and the idea is you have you have functions, and then you have mm-hmm. cross-functional teams. And at the junction point of function and cross-functional team, you have two owners at all times. And I was like livid when I was at this company because I would say, I want ownership of this. I want ownership. And they're like, well, you do have ownership and you share it with someone else. And I'm like, no, I don't have ownership. That's not ownership. So face and pace, create a matrix-like organization, but give you singular accountability. And the CEO is the tiebreaker when conflict comes.
1: Mm. Nice. Love it. This one you've given a few answers to so far already, but I'm going to ask it anyway, so you can pick one more. And maybe you'll pick a podcast instead of a book, but favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow as a founder?
0: I'm re- can I give you a couple? <laughs>
1: yeah, you can. <laughs> Man, people are going to be reading forever from this episode, George.
0: Dude, <laughs> dude well, that's how we grow. That's how we learn. We got to read. I mean, You're look right. at Zuckerberg. Look at Gates. You know, look at Buffett. They're all readers, all of them. Yep. For one, I think across all industries, all business, the, the perennial book there is E-Myth Revisited. You know, the E-Myth is a fantastic book across all functions, all businesses. Two of my personal favorites and they're they're tangent to business, is Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way. Love that book. I love the way that he frames his thinking in that. And the last one I would give is Jocko Wilnick's Extreme Ownership. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll have you read any of the those? Way I have
1: not read that one, and you just gave uh, me one that I haven't read. So that's terrific. I love it.
0: How about Ego is the Enemy? Have you read that one?
1: No, I have not.
0: So ego the ego is the enemy and the obstacle is the way. Two Ryan Holiday books that will really make you think. If you listen or read either of those two books and you walk away with nothing, then you weren't listening. Mm. You know, you weren't reading. You will walk away with something with
1: those two books. Kind of like listening to George the Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. You know the the one podcast I think it's
0: it's it's more for me, what helped me grow because I, I like looking at divergent things, not just business. But for me, the the Art of Manliness is a great podcast just because it covers a lot of things. And I realize that's really focused on males generally. Um, I think women can get something from it too, but the art of manliness is a fantastic podcast just because of what it covers and the topics they tap on leadership, history, things like that.
1: Nice. That's great, George. Thank you for that. Um yep. All right, so a couple of more unconventional ones I'll call them. But what actor would play you in a movie?
0: <laughs> it de- it depends on uh how that movie is written, but the one that I would prefer would be Ryan Reynolds because nice. he's a smart ass and I would love to have somebody like that play me that was a complete smart ass and half the <laughs> things that they did because hey, we have to have fun with what we do and I I can be a complete smart ass.
1: Yep, that's great. All right, finally, what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you look back and have achieved everything you set out to?
0: Yeah, that's a tough one. The one that came up to me is liminality. So, the are you familiar with liminal thinking, liminal space?
1: Briefly, but for the audience's sake, share with us. Yeah.
0: So the idea, I believe it goes back to the Greeks. They had this idea of taking liminal space between things. So, we have a tendency in our society and and i saw it when i left the 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 acquire the company that acquired us um i decided to leave and just go pursue something right and i remember that day the next question came up is what are you going to do next and when are you going to do it and i'm like I, I i really don't know and that fried marbles because they're like what do you mean you don't know you you got to have clarity you got to know where you're going to go next i'm like actually i don't and the idea of liminal space is Think of it as like life's sorbet, right? It's a palate cleanser. If you go, you hear a lot about it in relationships. When you break up with someone, they tell you, take some time off. Don't go right to a rebound because the rebound is going to be unhealthy. And so liminal space is this idea that after I do something significant, be it a career or a relationship, a project, whatever it is, take ample time off to get distance from that thing so that you can have clarity on the next thing that you do. And I have learned that lesson multiple ways throughout my life about being very liminal around my life.
1: Love it. All right. Well, as we close off here, you've given so much to everyone today, George. So I always offer every guest in turn to have a little bit of self-promotion, if you will. Yeah, sure. How can those listening help you out?
0: You know what? I I love talking to people about what's going on in their companies. And that doesn't always mean it has to be a paid engagement, right? So if someone has a question about what they're doing or how they're operating, reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk for an hour and, and just sit down and figure out what's going on. You know, how can I help you? Like, authentically, how can I help you? You know, one of the things I, I love to do for people is in scaling up, we have a set of assessment tests for founders, growth founders, And we run this test and it benchmarks them against their peers. And I can then show you, hey, this is where you are versus where your peers are. And what do you think about that? Like, how would you want to address that? Mm -hmm. It's a great tool to just kind of see where you're at. I mean, people can go ahead and reach out. I love to have conversations because that also sharpens me as well, right? Like I get something out of that. Even if it's not financial, I get something out of it when it comes to knowledge and working with people. So yeah. go to gmorris.com and and reach out any way you want.
1: gmorris.com that's the best way to get in touch with you. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. All right, we'll put that in the show notes too then and George, thank you so much for joining us on the dirt and really enjoyed this time today. Thanks man. Hopefully
0: I get hopefully I gave you a lot of dirt, but yeah, gave thank you, you Jim. Me
1: plenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, Audience thank you so much. You All right, see you later. <laughs> see you <ya. laughs> If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, Make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really like this, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.